Hi, everyone. Welcome to episode eight of Kindred Cast, Lion Tree's bi weekly podcast featuring insights and stories from the world of tech, media, and everything in between. I'm your host, Aviva Rumani. Lion Tree recently held our annual private company conference at the New York Stock Exchange. The day featured a host of presentations and conversations with some of the most exciting companies in the space, including CEOs from three unicorns, WeWork, Warby Parker, and BamTech. Today's featured interviewee is no stranger to unicorns. Journalist, entrepreneur, and angel investor, Jason Calacanis is a veteran of the tech space. His new book called Angel, How to Invest in Technology Startups, Timeless Advice from an Angel Investor Who Turned a Hundred Grand into a Hundred Million Dollars, has just come out, and he shares insights and anecdotes from his many years on the front lines of the technology boom. Here we go. We begin today with our latest KinCast quiz question. Stay tuned until the end to find out if you got it right. Globally, in Q2 2017, VC-backed companies raised $40.1 billion across 2,985 deals. The top 10 largest deals accounted for what proportion of global venture funding in Q2? A, 12%, B, 27%, C, 35%, or D, 43%. Lion Tree's Alex Michael sat down with author and angel investor Jason Calacanis, who began by chronicling the Silicon Alley scene of the late 90s and became one of the industry's most successful and colorful angel investors. He shares details of some of his biggest wins, the ones that got away, and best practices for aspiring angels. It's quite a chat. Welcome to the show, Jason Calacanis, who is a former journalist. Correct. Entrepreneur. For sure. And now what you're here to talk about really is angel investing. Yeah, angel investing, which is probably what I'll be famous for. Well, let's talk about that. This whole- I was a good journalist. So what did you I do was in an journalism? Okay. Well, I started, I was, my first gig here in New York uh, was writing a column for Paper Magazine in the 90s. Paper kind of ran lower New York. It was the magazine to write for or be affiliated with. Journalism is a great precursor to being an angel investor because you have to cut through a lot of bullshit because you're interviewing people and people are prepped by PR people and you got to just sort of play Columbo like a detective. You did print journalism. Yeah. Then you founded a blog company. Yeah. Weblogs Inc. sold to AOL. Uh, Mark Cuban was our one investor. We sold it for $30 million 18 months after we started it. It was a pretty good win. Uh, And that kind of got me going in my career. It was my first paycheck. And then why not just continue with that entrepreneur track? What, what? I did a bit, and I still do. I have Inside.com, which is doing email newsletters, sort of like a Weblogs Inc., but for email. And it's doing really well. But at a certain point, a bunch of my friends had started companies and were asking me for advice. So one of my friends was investing in an electric car company. He was asking me for a bunch of advice and talking to me about this Tesla thing. You know, it was Elon. Another friend of mine, Evan, was starting Twitter. He was the SMS messaging, group messaging platform at the time. And uh, my other friend was starting an online poker company, Mark Pincus and Zynga. And I was just helping them all, you know, hash out their ideas, rap out about ideas. A lot of people who are entrepreneurs who I become friends with just like to rap out about ideas with me because I have a pretty big historical knowledge of the technology space, having been a journalist. And uh, I'm fun to hang out with. And so... uh, (laughs) 
Candidly, I'm, I'm a good time. So, uh, <laughs> you know, but I, I didn't invest in any of those companies. And I watched my friends just go on to spectacular success. And those were each a 50 to $100 million mistake. And I didn't really consider myself an angel investor at the time. So when Travis showed me Ubercab, uh, the first thing I said to him, he said, hey, you want to see my new project? I said, can I invest? And he said, okay, do you want to see it? And I said, sure. And on the Embarcadero in San Francisco, he showed me a Lincoln Town car moving sideways down a street because the cars didn't turn, actually. It was just like an image of a Lincoln Town car going like it was screeching sideways down a street about to flip over. And I was like, how come the car's not going in the right direction? He's like, oh, it's a really difficult challenge. You know, like we have to make different gifts and everything. Um, and I said, well, this is kind of stupid because you're calling it Uber Taxi. And they're not taxis. They're Lincoln Town cars. So why don't you just call it Uber He's like, yeah, yeah, we're negotiating the domain name right now, whatever Warner Music Group has, or some music group had it. I said, oh, can I get credit for that? Because, you know, Sean Parker got Zuck to take the the off. And he's like, well, we already made a decision. I was like, I I don't care about decision. I just want credit. When they make the Uber movie, I want to get credit for the taxi being dropped off. He's like, fine, I'll give you credit. You you invest, and I invested, and the rest is history. So, Wow. Yeah. Uh, But, you know, the truth is I would have easily invested in those other three companies. In fact, I helped... um, them, two of them find investors. So, Well, you talk about it in the book. You said you've had numerous wins, Uber and Thumbtack, two of your first five angel investing uh, yeah. experiences. Yeah, that was pretty crazy to hit. But you do talk about what I thought was, was very interesting and illustrative that you did miss on Twitter. Yeah, it's a $50 million mistake. And when I missed on Twitter, I learned one of my big rules of angel investing, which is I don't need to understand the idea or if it will succeed. So an intelligent person comes to angel investing and they try to deploy their intelligence and having been a product person and thinking I know a lot about the internet, which I do, that doesn't mean I understand what's going to work in the future. I don't think anybody really does. And you just have to do experiments. And so if you're going to do a bunch of experiments, you can try different things. You just want to invest in the most talented, motivated, resilient people. And so I always tell people, I don't need to know if your idea is going to succeed. I need to know if you're going to succeed. And I've kind of taken that to the next level, which is I look at my investments in entrepreneurs as a three company investment process. So now I have two companies that had what I'll call single or double exits, where we returned a multiple on capital, but single digit. And I've invested heavily in the founder's next company. And I will invest if they ever do a third company. Uh, but I have a feeling they both found their final company. And that's a really great feeling when you have an entrepreneur who's found their final company. But that was a $50 million mistake passing on Twitter. Because I just thought it was stupid. Like, we were sitting at brunch, and, Biz, and Ev and Biz and I were having brunch, and they took my BlackBerry, and they're like, sign up, 40404, Jason, blah, blah, blah. And Evan's like, I'm having tofu scramble, and Biz is like, I'm having eggs benedict, and I'm like, I'm having the steak fr- and eggs, you know, and all of our phones go off, and I said, Evan, this is the stupidest thing I've ever seen. You just cost me like nine cents. These things cost four and a half cents each, because it was only working on SMS. He's like, yeah, we're going to figure that out. I was like, let me finish. Nobody cares what you or Biz are having for breakfast. Specifically, nobody cares about what Biz is having. Maybe they care about what you're having. And in addition to that, you just took the blog post and you got rid of the blog. And you created Blogger before this and sold it to Google. So now you just, you took Blogger and you got rid of the blog post and you left the headline. Right. You realize every idiot in the world is going to have this thing and it's going to be a cacophony of idiots. I, and I was absolutely 100% correct. But it made a lot of money. But it made a lot of money. And, ex- you know, and this is what you have to figure out. Like, and the number of reasons of why a startup will fail is always very long. So what I do now is I just write the list of all the reasons it will fail in my little deal memo book, and then I write the one or two reasons that it's going to work, and I just cross out all the reasons it's not going to work and say, I'm just going to suspend disbelief, and they'll figure all this stuff out. Regulations and consumer adoption and making the taxi face the right way on the map and 
getting drivers on board or whatever it is. And I, I just assume all those little things will get checked off. And then the, the one or two things, reasons it will work, I just assume those will work, right? It's basically like you could put a bet for $1,000, right? Give me $1,000 right now. If you pull the ace of spades from the deck, you get a million. Now, most people will be like, I'm not giving you $1,000 to pull the ace of spades. The majority chances I lose. But anybody who knows any just basic statistics will take that bet all day long. But human, humans don't because mm-hmm. we are risk averse. And, you know, it really is a lot of psychology to investing, as you know. And there's a lot of psychology to gambling. And investing and gambling share a lot of things in common. And the psychology of it is very important. And most people overestimate the downside risk. The downside risk of losing $1,000 51 times in a row is $51,000. And the upside of hitting that 50-second card, the ace of spades, is a million. You would take that all day long. And if I even made it $100,000 if you pull the ace of spades, most people wouldn't take that bet, even though it, it pays off. It's true. So that's what I've learned in angel investing and in life is that people don't take enough risk. And the reason I wrote the book, and there's no books on angel investing from anybody who's ever had success. I think there's one or two books by people who've, like ebook kind of nonsense by people who've never actually hit a unicorn and or had any kind of demonstrable success. And certainly nobody from Silicon Valley because nobody wants to explain how this works because we live in a rigged casino in San Francisco. And every time we play Texas Hold'em poker, the first card we get is the Ace of Spades. And I try to explain this to people, like, you have a lottery ticket, you have to hit eight numbers. Like, I've got the first four filled in already. I just hit four. So wait, let's just pause there for angel investing. Just define that for, for people who might, yeah. you know, in school or whoever is listening In this, this context, it's angel investing in high technology startups. Now, you could be an angel investor in local businesses and do friends and family rounds and help your cousin open their dry cleaner or pizzeria. That is a terrible investment, just like movies and local businesses are almost universally a terrible business. If you do those, you're doing it for the fun of it. And to maybe help the person out. You have an affinity for the movie, the script, the director. Maybe you want to uh, get your son or daughter into the film or something. You can kiss that money goodbye. And then if you do a local business, you're doing it probably to support the community. That's all fine. What I'm talking about here is angel investing in companies that have a chance to become worth a billion dollars. If you look at high-tech startups, how do you get into them? And where do they originate from? And how do you identify them? Well, after doing 150, you start to have some signaling. And after you start to hit some home runs... You start to get more confident and you start to double down on your process and your thesis. And that's what I've done over the last five, six, seven years is I've really started to say, hey, I'm an expert at this. What, how did I actually do it? And I started examining it and doing some, you know, a deep dive into which of my investments worked and why. And, you know, the idea of trying to figure out if the idea is going to work versus betting on the founder is one of those key principles. It's a, it's a key first principle. Like people who build great companies are competent. People who build great companies are able to build. And so the second thing I look for after finding a founder who I think is super competent is I just look at their work. And if you're investing in companies before they have a product, as a new angel investor, that's a high-risk activity. Now, if you know Elon Musk is going to do a drilling company, the boring company, and he tells you he's going to do it, that's a fine and you know, based on his three other unicorns, you can make that bet. But if you're a new angel investor and you, this is an unknown quantity, what you really want to do is look at the product. So when I looked at the early you know, version of Uber, I looked at the er- early versions of Thumbtack or Wealthfront or Robinhood, they just had a crispness and a, a well-thought-out approach. So when I asked the founders questions, hey, so why are you building this? What are you working on? Why will this work now? Very open-ended, short questions. Why now? Why will this work now? What are you working on? Why this idea? And when you start asking questions like that, uh, what will this look like after you deploy this capital? 
you know, what will this million dollars get you to? They tend to have very well thought out, considered answers. And they will talk, just like pulling a string on a doll. Like, they will just talk forever. We have an expression in Silicon Valley, uh, small mouth, big ears. Because if you get to the position of being an angel investor or, you know, even a venture capitalist, you probably have a lot to say. You probably have a lot of knowledge. And so when you come into a meeting with an entrepreneur, you're probably going to want to keep talking. And what I learned is to take the Columbo approach. I just play it stupid. He always asks these like very stupid, simple questions. And he acts kind of like a buffoon. And then over time, people just keep spilling their guts to him. So I took that approach to when I meet with founders. Well, and you distill this into four questions, right? In the book, I have four questions and then some follow-up questions. And there's a bunch of them. And people can come up with their own over time. Um, what are you working on? Why this idea? Um, you know, and um, why now? There's a bunch of basic questions. And the, the real thing I would want people to take away from this is to really be able to listen and to take a full hour. So I put angel investors on a three-hour program. So what I do when I go into meetings, I turn my phone over, I put it on airplane mode, and I say to them, the founder, I put my phone on airplane mode, but I set a timer for an hour. An hour should be enough, yeah? And they're, they're like, yeah, it's more than enough. And they say, okay, um, let's talk about what you're working on. And now this just sort of sets like a level of seriousness. Right, attention. Seriousness. Attention, yeah. being present. And I do an hour of prep before, and I do an hour of thinking about the idea after. So I put everybody on this three-hour program. Most people are like, oh, let me do a meeting quick, 20-minute, quick in and out. They're asking tons of questions. They're cutting off the founder. And I did that, my share of that in my early days. But you really want to take this more Obi-Wan-like approach. Less words, more listening. And it feels like a luxury in some ways, though. I mean, people, frenetic lives, trying to get a lot done. Yeah. Three hours feels like a big commitment. Well, here's the thing. It's, gonna, it's going to benefit you more than the founder because you're going to be a considered person. And you should only take the meeting in person if you've done enough research to realize that this is a qualified investment. This is something where they've built a product. They've been able to explain to you over email. They came from a trusted source. And the product's ready for you to invest. In other words... It's in your Goldilocks zone. And so I always look for companies in my zone. If they're too cold or too hot, I don't meet with them. Everybody wants to have coffee and talk about their ideas. I tell them, I don't invest in ideas, and I don't invest in prototypes anymore. I invest when a product's in the market and has a couple of customers for a, an enterprise product where can, companies are paying maybe three or four or five. And if it's a consumer product, maybe 50 or 500 a day. Something you know very de minimis, but at least we can have a talk about how they're using it. So I tell people, when you get to that point, then send me some information on the company. I do a couple of volleys over email, ask them questions, see how they respond, see how long it takes them to respond, see if they actually answer the questions. Life's a test, right? So you want to see if people can actually listen to the other person and answer their questions. Um, but that three hours, you know, if you're writing a deal memo after of your thesis of why you'll invest or your anti-thesis is why I'm not investing, you can file that, put it into a spreadsheet or email it to yourself. And when you miss a company like Twitter or Uber or Tesla, Airbnb, whatever you miss, your anti-portfolio, you can start to think, why did I miss that? And what can I learn from that miss? Right. And that's really what the name of the game is. You know, in the book, I advocate if people are going to do this and they want to take it on as a career, somewhere between, let's say, half-time and full-time, 20 hours a week, 10, 20 hours a week, all the way up to you know, your life's obsession is doable. And if you do that, you know, maybe do 10 investments in your first year, all in syndicates, all in angel groups. And we can explain what those are in a minute, but essentially putting $1,000 bets. Instead of putting $25,000 bets, you put 10 $1,000 bets, but you add two zeros in your mind and you behave as if you put 100000 and you give 
service to the entrepreneur and support as if you put 100000 in, something that's meaningful to you. And so by just putting $1,000 into the first 10, you can really start to learn. Most of these early stage startups are going to go back to the well three, four, five times in the angel, seed, series A range. So if you miss one, or if you bet light on the first bet, you know, they're raising their second raise of funding. They did friends and family. Now they're doing an angel round and you put a thousand in, they're going to do a seed round, a seed plus, and then a net series A. That's typically how it goes today. Five rounds of funding before series B. And series B is when you might have a harder time getting in, but up to series A, you probably have an easy time getting in, frankly. So up to that series A, you have five swings at the bat, no rush. If you get $1,000 in in the first, second, or third round, and then put $10,000 in the third, fourth, or fifth, and then maybe you put a huge bet of $50,000 in in the fifth or sixth round of funding, you're still going to do great. The people who did the Series B or Series A of Uber or Airbnb or Google are feeling pretty good about themselves. You don't have to be the seed investor. So something is working, clearly. You've been at this six years? Six or seven years. Let's talk a little bit about your track record. Why should we listen to this guy? Who is this guy? Always. He's, 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 yeah. Talk about that. Yeah, so it was very interesting. You know, I thought angel investing was... Uh, time-consuming and stupid, and I just wanted to invest in myself when I was an entrepreneur. I thought that was the best bet I could make. And that was largely true until you know my friends started building billion-dollar companies on a pretty regular basis. So at one point, uh, Sequoia Capital, which is the number one venture firm in history, they've done things like Google and Apple and YouTube, uh, WhatsApp, just tons of amazing companies, Cisco. One of them said, we're, gonna, we're trying to figure out early-stage investing. We have an idea called Sequoia Scouts. I said, that's a stupid name. They're like, okay, let me tell you the idea. We give you money, you invest it, we get half the return, you get half the return. I was like, it's like a 50% carry. I was like, how much carry do you get? I'm like, well, that's confidential, but it's not that much. But they kind of didn't think anybody would ever hit anything. And all of a sudden, I hit Uber and Thumbtack. And then actually, my friend Sam Altman, who now runs Y Combinator, hit Stripe. So you have these three huge home runs. And I'm, I'm 80% of the portfolio. He's this 10. is in how long? Well, we, we did. this was the first Scout uh, fund and then they wound up doing like five of them or something. So this was their capital. You their capital. They were Sequoia's like my LP. Capital. Yeah. Okay. And then I wound up raising my own fund after I did about, I don't know, 15 to 20 investments with them. And their only requirement was that I write a deal memo, which I thought was stupid. But over time, I've, and I do a chapter on it, I learned writing a deal memo lets you do proper forecasting. And you can't do forecasting if you don't, at a moment in time, stop and say, what's my thesis on this? And if you explain your thesis... Then you at least have some data that you can go back and look at, because what happens is everybody goes back and has, you know, the um, this you know sort of negativity or positivity bias where they're like, well, I hit Uber, so I'm a genius because I looked in Travis's eyes and I saw it. Well, how do we prove that? You didn't, but if you write in a deal member, this founder is extremely passionate, he's more think? passionate, yeah. right, than I've ever seen. Then you could actually use that as a data point, like, okay, passion is a good thing to look for, um, and we all have biases in our mind of you know. Oh, you know, founders need to look like this or behave like this. They need to be maniacs. They need to be you know, extroverts. But then you have Larry Page or, you know, uh, Zuckerberg, who are tremendous introverts. So obviously, they don't have to be extroverts. So they, you have all that bias. Then I did my own fund. I did about 110 investments through Launch Fund 1, which we just finished. Um, and I had done a handful of investments on my own in between, just from Cal Canis LLC, my little LLC, for doing it. And of those, um, five of them have become, six of them have become unicorns. Uh, when I did Sequoia, we had three, uh, Uber, Thumbtack, which you mentioned, and another one called Datastacks, uh, which is doing wonderfully. It's a technolo database technology company. Then in my fund, we had Robinhood for trading stocks free. You've heard of that, I'm sure. And then just yesterday, we're taping this on the 18th of July, on the 17th uh, of July, uh, Desktop Metal 
which is uh, run by a friend of mine, Rick Fullop, who I met when I was on the board of the Dime, which is a DNS company in New Hampshire. Um, and he was between companies, and he told me about his new idea to make a 3D metal printing company. And I'm like, well, that's insane. That doesn't exist in the world, right? He's like, no, we're going to make it. So it's great. I put a little money in that, and you know, that's become a unicorn. And then Wealthfront, which I'm an advisor to. So I was able to sneak into that one as an advisor. So five investments in one advisorship in the billion-dollar category. So six out of 150? Yeah, and I would say those six all came, I think, in the first hundred investments. So if I really wanted to crow, I could say like six six percent uh, out of that first hundred. But in reality, I would take the whole portfolio and I'd say one every twenty five is probably my track record. Now, my plan with the book is, you know, the the number one killer of angel investors is success. So a lot of my good friends who were investors and did well, they hit an Uber like Chris Sock and I did, and they're done. They retire. And so you see a lot of folks calling in rich. You know, people call in sick. Yeah. In our industry, we have calling in rich, which is, why am I doing this? Why do I want to deal with this pain and suffering? Three hours, meetings, the whole thing. Yeah, and having some level of discipline and hearing people drone on and on. And some number of them are bullshit artists, as we talked about before. And some of them are straight up liars. And I talk about that in the book. I caught two or three founders in just really compromising lies before I invested in them and it got pretty dicey. You know, I've been screwed a couple of times in my career and I talk about that in the book because for me, being a kid who grew up um, essentially in the indebted lower middle class, which kind of makes you poor and fearful, right? Like, okay, we owned our house, but- Here in Bay Ridge. Here in Bay Ridge. You know, we owned our house, but it was we had tremendous debt, so we're kind of underwater and we lived month to month, paycheck to paycheck. And it really got in my head like, God- you know, being poor sucks. And then I went to the Valley, I got in the tech business here in New York, and everybody said, it's not about the money. And I said, you, you have a lot of money. So it's very easy to say it's not about the money, but if you had zero in your bank account right now and you had $100,000 in debt, you were 100000 in debt. It's about the money. It would certainly be about the money because you would be staring at the ceiling and grinding your teeth like I did and my parents did. And every fight, I mean, the only time I ever saw my parents fight was over money. There was never a fight about anything else. And so I just think about it, wow, if they had money, this probably would have been- Makes things easier. It doesn't solve everything, but it makes it easier. Well, that's right. And you know, it's, it's kind of up to a certain point. The studies in Happiness show, like once you have a roof over your head and you're not worried about the next six weeks or six months or six days, you're fine. Um, and and you know, maybe even on the edges, having too much will cause anxiety. Um, but I wrote the book really because I, I believe that the American dream that we were told- and by we, uh, you know, anybody over the age of 20, is complete and utter nonsense today. If you look at what we were told, they said, get a white-collar job, be a banker, be a lawyer, accountant, something you could count on to make $100,000 a year, or $75,000 a year, or $150,000 a year, and then meet a spouse who does the same. Get married, now you have dual income. Now buy a house. And today, if you had two people making $150,000 in Manhattan, $300,000, and they wanted to buy a house within half an hour of their office in Midtown, they would have to spend what? Two million? Three million? And then people are graduating with $100,000 in debt. Because at the same time that houses became out of reach, college became also out of reach. Now people have 10, 20 years of college debt. That means they're making their first house payment at 30 or 35, not at 25 or 30 like our parents did. So that dream is over. Rich dad, poor dad, and concepts of using white collar employment plus real estate, and then eating peanut butter and jelly on the way to work, not going out to dinner, packing your lunch, and then maybe buying a second home or having a two-income home where you rented the basement apartment, being a landlord. That was a a really good idea, I think, in the last century. 
In this next century, that's not going to work. So what is it? What is this? I believe it's getting on cap tables of high-tech startups. There could be other ideas people have about, you know, maybe lowering their consumption and being a freelancer and just living a- Side hustle. Side hustle and living literally two or three hours outside of a major city where the cost of living is just ridiculously low. And I think that hack is being- employed uh, by a lot of people now, actually. You see Uber drivers or people with Airbnbs outside of cities or people who have a house in the city, Airbnb at 20 days a month and living on a friend's couch in upstate New York and driving in and out to change the sheets between people coming to stay at their house and they're doing the arbitrage and just having very low cost of living. So there is that possibility. Asset light, low cost of living. Yeah, and and somebody else can write that book. I'm not an expert on that. What I am an expert on is angel investing in high-tech startups and getting on the cap table. There's four ways to get on the cap table. Most people know this. It's pretty obvious. You could start the company. You could invest in the company. You could work for the company, or you could be a consultant or advisor to the company. That is a little bit of a hack where you can get on a cap table for trading your services. I'm a great sales executive. I'm going to help train and hire your first sales team for your company. That's a pretty good hack. You could say, hey, I would normally charge $50,000 for this service over six months, 10000 a month. I'll take half cash, half equity. The startup would do that. All of a sudden, you got $25,000 into a company. That's actually how I did it in the early days. Before I had money, I was an advisor to these companies. And they would hire me to just help them with SEO, search engine optimization, content, and PR and marketing. So there's a, there's a lot of ways to get on that cap table. And I think over time, if you want to have extreme wealth, I'm talking about jumping three or four steps up the ladder. The best way I can think of doing it in a non-criminal enterprise is angel investing. Okay, but pause there because you said there's only one place in the world to do this. Correct. You're like, you are doing everything wrong if you're not in Silicon Valley. Correct. And here's... here's Which seems slightly offensive, but I know you, this is grounded yeah. in data. Yeah, so here's what I'm trying to explain to people. I have a chapter in the book, do you need to be in Silicon Valley to be a successful angel? And I say, yes, it's a one-word chapter. What I mean by that is... If you want outsized returns, so if you want to get the best returns, you should play in the casino with the best odds. That casino is known as Silicon Valley. If you go to Silicon Valley, you're going to see a lot more deals by a lot more qualified people, and there are thousands of co-investors for you to network with. It's the equivalent of playing in the NBA versus playing in the rec league or playing pickup games in the park. It's just a different level. Now, in Stockholm, you've had nine incredible unicorns that were born there. A couple of them left. And in China, you've got some great companies. Japan, you've had some mostly Moss's companies, even Korea. But you, you can count them on one hand. Here, even in New York, my hometown, which I love, and I had the Silicon Reporter magazine, you know, there's never been a $10 billion company. There's been Tumblr, billion dollars. You've had Etsy, you know, Kickstarter. It's a small cohort. And so they, you have to pick up and move to, to Silicon Valley no, if you want to do this? No. In fact, all my angel investing, I, I've only lived in Silicon Valley for three years. I lived in LA, which is you know a hop, skip, and a jump. Now, a lot of people tell me, oh my God, there's so many things happening outside of the valley now. That's absolutely true. That is a true narrative. But if you want to have the outsized returns, if you just look at the once a decade companies, those are companies that are going to be above $50 billion in valuation. Really, there's only two that have occurred outside of Silicon Valley, Amazon and Microsoft. And the rest, Facebook, Google, Snapchat. Snapchat is another exception down in uh, LA. Twitter, uh, Cisco, Apple. You know, these are all Valley companies. And that's where I think the majority of the $100 billion outcomes will occur is here, uh, will be in Silicon Valley. But there's an interesting article I was reading, I think it was Vox this week, that the age of the mega tech, not even unicorn, but that next level of Facebook, Amazon, Google level. Decacorn. Decacorn. Decacorns are 10. 
are 10 billion or above. I call those ones the, the decade accords. The decade accord. Because they come along once a decade. There's an argument that that actually that has left the station. That no. You haven't Incorrect. seen, you know, Instagram gets taken out early. Um, yeah, WhatsApp got bought for though for twenty billion. So for twenty billion. Yeah. So that, the, but the, these guys are not letting the the you you've argued companies in the past let these other companies sort of eat their lunch eventually. But, yeah. But now these guys are too smart. Amazon, Facebook, they won't let others. Get it's there. definitely going to get more competitive. But the truth is, you know, the same was you know said about Snapchat, uh, and you can see Facebook is trying to kill Snapchat. They can't kill it. So I don't believe that Facebook's going to be able to do it actually. And they're talking about Amazon being able to crush uh, Blue Apron, et cetera. Like, they could hurt their stock in the short term, but I think in the long term. And also Amazon Prime was going to kill Netflix. That hasn't happened. So I think that narrative is a little bit naive. I think, yes, they're going to put up a bigger fight. Yes, they're going to have bigger war chests to buy out founders earlier and, and shareholders. So that will happen. There's another counter that's happening, which is access to capital for successful companies has never been easier. So you have Airbnb and Uber, which you know, have reached tens of billions of dollars in legitimate valuation. You could you could argue the last 20% of any valuation with the highly intelligent people who are making those bets. And that's another thing people don't realize. Like, you're arguing against some of the best investors in the world overpaying. What do you think they know when they have full access to information? So you think they're overbetting by 10 or 20%. Do you realize that if you pay 20% more for Amazon as a private company, it is insignificant, or if you pay double for Amazon when it was a private company, or Facebook, or Google, or Microsoft, or any of them, it would be insignificant in the long run. That's what they're actually betting on. Sure. But people get all caught up, the journalists and the public, oh my God, they overpaid, they overpaid. It's like, these people have a 10-year arc, 20-year arc, you know? Well, what is the mood in Silicon Valley right now? It seems that there were some really frothy valuations, a lot of unicorns minted probably two years ago. Yeah, 2015 was the, the peak madness and it's come back down to earth people were raising money for private companies coming out of yc at 15 million dollar valuations with eight weeks of manufactured data in some cases so my book is kind of a way to unravel a little bit of that gamesmanship Mm -hmm. there's a bit of an arms race you know before i said oh you're looking for a passionate founder so now everybody knows that investors looking for passionate founders so they come in bouncing off the walls Oh my God, yeah, no, I'm so passionate about it. Oh, well, what's the origin story? We need to make sure that there's some real problem here you're solving that's personal. Now they all have this personal story. So I was walking down the street and a car flipped over and killed eight people and I realized we need to make better brakes for cars. And you're like, wow, that's just incredibly personal. Like, my dog was killed by a bicyclist who, you know, now we're gonna have self-driving bicycles, you know? It's like, wow, that's so personal. You'll never give up. I have to give you money. So, you know, it was like an arms race for who could out games or like chess moves or poker moves people are leveling each other so things are coming back to normal a little bit however what do you do there's a hundred plus units or something like that yeah do venture capitals just sit tight and play this out and don't put more money in and hopefully it goes public it's a good question whenever the market gets too crazy and you set the goalposts too far uh, there's a couple of different scenarios one is you can just slowly build not raise money for two or three years and build into the valuation so you oversold you said you were a unicorn you really should have been worth 300 million you said you were worth a billion people gave you 100 million for 10 percent of the company but that's enough money to go for five years without raising more funding you're losing 20 million a year a million and a half a month whatever it is okay you can build into that billion dollar valuation everybody's got to be patient and that's what is occurring in some cases In other cases, they were blowing money so quickly, and the unit economics didn't work. In other words, the individual transaction didn't work. So an example of that was Bento, which was bringing meals to your door for $12. 
but it was costing them at the beginning $30 to deliver the meal. Then they got it down to 15, then to 14, then to 13, 12, 10, 10 dollars they got it to, and then they started charging 14 or 15. They started to have, you know, unit economics that actually made sense. But then Blue Apron came along and said, well, instead of bringing one meal, we'll send six meals or nine meals or 12 meals. So the $30 shipping cost is across nine right. meals. And we'll amortize it across that. And they kind of won the day and figured out the shipping problem. You know, some people just overbet and those companies go out of business and we look at them as experiments and the winners outperform and bank up for the losers. So if you have, you know, 10 of these unicorn bets and half of them go away, you know, it's, it's not really that big of a deal. Right, right, right. You want to have a good hitting average, but you don't want to be, if everything was a sure bet, it would be a public company, right? There would be an ability, once there's an ability for an analyst, some MBA to come in and build a financial model and understand the levers of the business and make it predictable like Google and Facebook, they, essentially those two companies can pick the amount of revenue they want. They could dial up the number of ads they show in their network or dial it down. They could decrease the amount per click, which would make marketers get more clicks, which makes them more greedy. They put more money into the system. So literally, when you look at a public company like Google or one like Facebook, and you start thinking about them hitting their number, it's like somebody at a roulette table who can control the spin and the ball movement, picking what number it lands on. Like They can literally put a magnet under a number and have the ball land there. It's just the nature of having a dialed-in system like that. Right. If Amazon wants to increase its profits in the short term and hit a certain number... Well, being able to do negative margin as Amazon has done in so sure. many businesses, I mean, that's a license to take down anything. Right. And, you know, Jeff Bezos is now emboldened. I think the Whole Foods acquisition is a turning point for them because they had done some... I can't remember the names of them, but some, you know, kind of fakaka, you know, acquisitions early on that didn't really work out. And um, now... If they buy companies like Whole Foods and the stock goes up more than the price of the acquisition, Brilliant. that tends to make the founders get really um, aggressive. It's sort of like if you win three or four pots in a row and all of a sudden you've got a chip stack that's 10x anybody else at the table, you can just press. start getting loose. You can and, press. Yeah, you can press people a little bit. And that's what they're doing is pressing their advantage. Let's talk about podcasting. Yeah, love podcasting. Because obviously we We're have on one a, now. our own here, Kindred Cast. You have a very interesting theory on the podcast business, which is in its infancy. And I brought this up with Peter Kafka and a couple other people we've talked to. But you have a theory on how there could be one sort of mega podcasting company. And it's, and it's early, but still. Yeah. Uh, and and actually, a lot of people talked about it. I don't know if you sort of yeah. really, but it kind of made the circles. Tell us that theory and what needs to happen. So if you look at podcasting, um, and I've been doing my podcast for almost 800 episodes. We have four full-time people working on it, and, and not including myself, so five. And um, it does a million dollars a year. And we started seven, eight years ago, eight years ago. So uh, doing 100 episodes a year, two a week consistently. It's a super easy thing to do. We sit in a room. And we would have the same conversation like over now. lunch, right? Yep. I think that the people who have been drawn to it are very independent spirits. So you have people like Joe Rogan or Sam Harris or Leo Laporte. Uh, these are the kind of people who you know, are opting out of having a boss, are independently wealthy, can go do a book or a stand-up comedy show or whatever it is and make $25,000. So if their podcast makes money or doesn't make money, it doesn't matter. They're doing it because they enjoy doing it. Those are the people who succeed. What I proposed is if five podcasters got together, you know, like a Joe Rogan, myself, Leo Laporte, uh, Sam Harris, Corolla would be a great example. People who are in that one to $10 million a year range. And we all started a company. 
put all of our assets into the company, and we all took out whatever revenue we had. Maybe we leave a tributary of 5% of our revenue. So you have a $20 million revenue base, and you leave 10% of it. You have $2 million to hire an operating team, a management team, and a sales team to just work on that or marketing budget. You could create the Netflix of podcasting. It's one of these industries that it's so lightweight that the talent rules and doesn't need help. It's, it's, an, ex- it's an example of the post-distribution uh, world. We've been doing this on the show to just get a little more sense of you, and yeah. everyone's always looking for recommendations. Um, by the way, you talk a lot about poker. You talk a sure. lot about Star Wars. Yeah, what is Jedi. your favorite Star Wars movie? Well, that's a great question. So um, I think the proper order, if you just take the original trilogy, is obviously uh, five, four, six, which is Empire, A New Hope, and then you go Return of the Jedi. Now, you introduce the prequels, so that would put me at five, four, Rogue, which is 3.5, three, six, seven, and then one and two, I don't care. We're going to have to publish notes on this. This on, is a very important discussion for okay, me. So but Blade Runner is better than all of them. Wow. Okay, Blade Runner, number one. What do you read each morning religiously? Is there something, what do you turn to? What's the quick sort of? Uh, well, Twitter is obviously where I start. Yep. And I have different curated lists of individuals that I like to read. Tech meme, any of these others that you're Well, like- we have launched Ticker, which is our email twice a day, which is our like research product, which is, you know, I think Tech Meme is a great site. Um, yep. Launch Ticker comes in my email twice a day. Yeah. Uh, but I, I visit probably Tech Meme three or four times a day as well. Okay. Great, great site. But, t- but Twitter is your go-to. Twitter is the, yeah, you really S- want to be on Twitter. Because you get streaming the- show. An Amazon, a Netflix, even maybe we'll go HBO or something like that. Something that you're really into right now. I re-binge watched over Christmas, The Sopranos. Okay. Which I think is like actually as a, just a tip for anybody, like to re-watch it with somebody who hasn't watched it or just to re-watch it is hilarious because there's so many things that you don't remember and things you do remember. I think The Americans is something that people should watch and is underrated, but it's so good. I, I wait for the season to end. And then I binge watch it because okay. it's just that good. Silicon Valley is scary accurate. Uh, so that, as someone who lives it, you're saying it's great. Well, they've come to my poker game. I've talked to the writers before. I've met the actors. Finally, podcast, not your own, not Kindred cast. What do you listen to? Oh, well, obviously I listen to Bill Simmons. I love Peter Kafka's. Um, and pulling my show. Uh, We're good. Yeah. yeah, Peter Kafka's great. Obviously, Kara Swisher's great. And uh, Sam Harris's. I- I'll tell you the two wild cards, because the ones I'm telling you, obviously, are ones like revisionist history that are obvious. But I do think that uh, Brett Easton Ellis does such a politically incorrect podcast is just amazing. And he starts with an essay. And he writes these brilliant essays that you know, really tackle these very difficult subjects. And then he starts talking about films from the 70s and 80s and, you know, and even in contemporary films. And he's really politically incorrect. So thank you for coming on Kindred Cast. We did it. We did it. Thanks, Jason. Thanks for having me. Now let's see how you did with the quiz question. Globally, in Q2 2017, The top 10 largest deals accounted for what proportion of global venture funding in Q2? A, 12%, B, 27%, C, 35%, or D, 43%? And the answer is B, 27%, while accounting for only 0.3% of deal volume. After a quiet year, the number of mega deals, that is $100 million plus, rose sharply during Q2-17 with the top 10 deals globally accounting for $10.8 billion in investment. China accounted for two $1 billion-plus deals, 
including a $5.5 billion funding round to ride-hailing platform Didi, the largest tech funding round ever, and a $1 billion funding round to news aggregator Totiao. In the U.S., both Lyft and Outcome Health raised $600 million rounds, and in Europe, Improbable, Auto One Group, and Gamma Delta Therapeutics all raised $100 million-plus funding rounds. I hope you enjoyed our show today. If you want to check out any prior episodes, you can always find us on iTunes, Stitcher, SoundCloud, or wherever else you get your podcasts. Feel free to also leave a review. Follow us on Instagram and Twitter at KindredCast for behind-the-scenes photos and info. Keep listening and see you next time. Audiation.